0: welcome to the to read list i'm bailey and this is a podcast where i attempt to get through the 139 unread books on my shelf with me is my friend toby hey my brother andrew hello my beloved husband dylan Hey! He is our sound recordist. And we have a special guest this week.
1: Special guest.
0: Miss Talia Bolnick. Yay! Yay! Yay.
1: (laughs) Cheering for herself.
0: Woo! (laughs) Talia, we met you through the Hatchery Press, which is a workspace for writers in Los Angeles. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that is and who you are? Uh, I would love to.
2: Um... I'm Talia, I run the Hatchery, which is a workspace for writers where Dylan and Toby are both members. So the Hatchery is a a co-working space specifically for writers. Um, we're located in Larchmont in Los Angeles, and it's something between an office and a college dorm room situation. We're very community minded and it's just like a good way to categorize your existence and not have to do everything at home.
1: It's like the log line for the hatchery, categorize Cate- your existence.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and why is it called the hatchery? I guess ostensibly it's a place where ideas are hatched. Every once in a while we'll get calls from fisheries. and
0: <laughs> Also, I appreciate that it's split into two buildings, the East Egg and the West Egg, like Gatsby.
2: There was a vote on that. Ooh. Yeah. It only, other- it only narrowly won. It was almost called the
0: office and the bungalow.
2: The oh. eggs are
1: so much better. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, we're so excited to have you as our first guest. Yeah. A, we like you. B, you're awesome. And C, you know, the hatchery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into um, a detailed interview of Miss Talia, I want to deal with some business. And the first thing is an apology to my brother, Andrew.
3: Oh. Oh. Why?
0: This apology is because when I was editing the last episode... I wasn't able to take out the sound of a man driving by, blasting gospel music out of his car.
3: Oh, you mean gospel truck? Gospel truck.
0: (laughs) And he covered up some of your... Joyce Carol Oates facts. So I want the listeners to know that you did more Joyce Carol Oates JCO research, just so everyone knows you did a good job.
2: Yeah. I also want to say as a listener and super fan, Andrew, mm-hmm. your facts are always amazing.
3: Thank you. Would you say they're better or worse than Toby's?
2: I. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> there was a long pause.
0: You, you, you looked at Toby as you were yeah. saying it. Like, yeah.
2: I regretted it as soon as it came she out She did that
1: thing <laughs> where she pointed at her eyes, then pointed at my eyes, then pointed at her eyes. It was terrifying. Yeah, it
2: was a power move, that's
3: what it was. <laughs> i have made my peace with the lack of jco facts with the knowledge <laughs> that toby liked her work so much i imagine she'll show up again on the to read list at some point
1: yeah you guys modify yourselves any way you can come on now
3: <laughs> this is not our fault toby this comes down to gospel truck
1: <laughs> it comes out you're right i'm sorry i didn't mean to blame gospel truck on you guys
0: <laughs> all right well i'm glad we got that apology out of the way Me um, too. Um, I do also want to reiterate that we have new bookmarks that we've been putting around and if you would like Mm -hmm. to have one please um, email us we'd be happy to send them to you we just got a request from Miss Heather and her book club crew in South Carolina and we're sending her some
1: shout out to Heather and the book club crew (laughs) we read your email and liked it
0: it was awesome (laughs) Um, you know not to get too behind the scenes but you Andrew are about to go to Azerbaijan
3: Uh, that's an interesting pronunciation but yes yeah, how
0: Azerbaijan. You, oh no, how do you say it? Azerbaijan. As a, what? What did I say? You. <laughs> you it, said
1: it was Azerbaijan. As if the, <laughs> the z, yeah, as if the Z R was capitalized. Okay, I'm gonna say that Azerbaijan.
0: Oh, <laughs> All right, so you Andrew are about to go to. Wait, now I'm Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. <laughs> Azer, you Andrew are about to go to Azerbaijan? No, <laughs> no.
1: Uh, we're keeping this anyway. <laughs>
0: Azerbaijan. No. Okay. Az- Az- well, Azerbaijan. you're Azerbaijan. You're about,
3: yeah.
0: You're gonna go somewhere, and I. <laughs> time to read books.
3: <laughs> Admittedly, it's a hard word to pronounce, bail But you're pronouncing <laughs> yeah. it in a w- you're like mispronouncing it in a way that is not the way most <laughs> people would mispronounce it.
2: I find it endearing.
0: Just, well, yeah. you guys are nice because I've literally been telling tens of people about this <laughs> and just pronouncing it that way, and they haven't said anything.
2: I imagine there are lots of people who don't know how to pronounce it. Okay. who've seen it That's written fair. down and never heard it before in their lives.
0: So. Talia, we know your name. We know what the hatchery is. We do not know. How did you come up with the idea for the hatchery?
2: So I'm from LA originally, and I went to school for university in England. And I came back, and I was working on a novel from home. Um, And I was also kind of struggling with becoming an adult outside of an academic setting. I'd always been kind of in heavy academics my whole life. And there's a really innate sense of genuine community, I think, when everyone is young and everybody has nothing but time on their hands to like learn things and get drunk and hang out with each other. And it's great. And yeah. L.A. is a very sprawling city to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of mourning the loss of an intellectual, creative community. And one day my boyfriend and I went to a game house it's a cafe that just has floor-to-ceiling bookshelves full of games. Oh. So it was just this place that had, everybody had this common interest, and they were interacting on the basis of that common interest. And I looked for something like that for writers, and there was one in Santa Monica, but there wasn't anything near me. So I I, I. F- started the hatchery
1: (laughs) you make it sound so easy sure it was that easy
2: (laughs) yeah it was there was a lot of like youtubing there was a lot of ikea runs Mm. um
0: that's awesome i'm I'm so impressed with you because like when i first graduated college i was like uh i don't know what i'm gonna do and you're just like i'm gonna become an entrepreneur
1: well you started that fish hatching business so you know
0: the other hatchery the rival hatchery Mm -hmm. (laughs) What kind of things does the Hatchery offer? Like, what are the different ways people can get involved who want to join? So the main
2: way is membership. We have full-time membership, which is pretty much all day, every day. And then part-time membership, which is like a nights and weekends thing. But there are also, um, I-, I think that access is important and that community should not be only for people who can afford membership or who are in a position to, to take full advantage of that. So so you can come to the classes, the workshops, uh, you can do day passes, Uh, Everybody's first day is free. So if you're interested, drop by for a trial day.
0: Check out our website. Awesome. Um, One of the things I love is you guys have kind of a library. You have a ton mm -hmm. of books there. Yeah. So where did you get those? And which ones do you like? Which ones do you wish people would take out more than they don't? Like, what's your relationship to those books?
2: So the books were originally, my mom is my business partner. She plays a very different role than I do at the Hatchery. She understands, like, payroll and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the original library was just her to read list and my to read list from home Um, which is good because she's into like some some really crazy architecture stuff and she's like an art historian kind of Mm -hmm. and so there were some really eclectic books and i'm really more into fiction and kind of like science stuff um so that's where the original books came from and then i i've purchased some of the resource library, Mm -hmm. so the books on writing. But all of the other books have been donated. I think people sometimes, like, have too many books in their homes. I don't
0: understand that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they don't want that many books, but they also just, they love them, and they don't like the idea of just giving them away to not to nothing to no one and so they know what the is. gives them to
1: a library ridiculous
2: (laughs) so that's where all the books came from and in terms of people me wanting people to take out books more than they do i don't think so Mm. i like the idea that people stumble onto the books Mm. in a in a really kind of like no pressure situation that's also one of the things that i wanted from the hatchery in terms of personal interaction Mm. is this like a lot of friendship is based on proximity and random unscheduled interactions. And you don't get that so much in your adult life. So it's a little bit like the the parallel of that with books is people can just kind of be reading whatever and put it back and there's no, you
0: yeah. haven't bought it. You haven't
2: invested in it.
0: I, that's one of the things I love about the Hatchery. I am I, not a member, but sometimes I go with, you know, these guys and I know that I can talk to a stranger and be like, oh, mm-hmm. so you're a writer. What are you yeah. ra- working on? No matter what, you yeah. have some common ground. It's cool um related to the hatchery and to you who is Eggy my dog will she be my friend
2: she 100% would be your friend yes. <laughs> She's pretty indiscriminate with her loyalty. Yeah. You, has that been your experience?
1: Yeah. Because you think you're, you're hot stuff when yeah. you like, she runs. Because she'll come like, she doesn't go anywhere slow. She like rockets into the room on her little legs. And then she'll like run over to me sometimes first. And I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah. And then, but then the next day, it's like she goes like with just as much intensity to the other person in the room. And I'm yeah. like, Maggie, no.
2: She's great, and I love her, but she is the canine version of people who've been hot their whole lives. Uh, yep. She's a French bulldog, so she's, you know, a she is genetic anomaly monster. I
1: don't know if you want to call her hot, Bailey.
2: <laughs> and also hot. I would yeah. say hot. Hot with an A-W-T. That's yeah, what yeah. she is.
1: Um, I'm gonna distance myself from this opinion.
2: <laughs> um, you know, we train her to not, like, attack her brother and that's, and to sit. She's gonna sit it.
3: She has a brother.
2: She has a kitty brother. Um, I always feel a little bit self-conscious when I call him her brother. It just feels like crazy pet yeah. parent.
1: I think the demographics of this podcast will be just yeah. fine with that kind <laughs> of naming.
2: Okay. Um, well, we have a cat
0: uh, as well named Oliver who predates
2: Eggy by three years.
0: On our Instagram, you can see pictures of all of our pets, not only um, Eggie and Ollie, but all of our cats. And so in case you don't know, um, the orange and white cat is my cat, Wallace. There's a dark tabby. That's my cat, Jax.
1: Yeah, I've got an orange one. His name is Arnold. He's the one that looks evil, like he's up to something.
3: And I have the three cats. Uh, Pierogi is the beautiful calico. George is the gigantic, fluffy orange one. And Marzipan is the small, fluffy gray one.
0: And they've all read 1984. (laughs) All right, so... Talia, how long is your to read list? Do you have a problem with buying books and not reading them? Yeah, I do.
2: I have a problem with buying books and not reading them in kind of like the way that anthropology is aspirational. My book buying is also sometimes kind of aspirational. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that the problem reached such a magnitude <laughs> that I was very happy to just completely ignore it once I started the hatchery and all mm-hmm. of those books were kind of absorbed yeah. magically yeah um, and they're absorbed in such a way where i still have access to them if i ever need to so i don't think that i have a to relist there are definitely books at home that i've kept but i think a lot of them are books that i've already read
1: if i understand this correctly so you have like basically mitigated the shame of having a to relist yeah. by like burying the yeah. bodies at the hatchery
3: yeah
2: it's a very modern yeah. solution
3: i like I it say. yeah
2: i also think the smell of books is like borderline intoxicating yeah i agree
3: i agree with you about the smell of books though i will say and maybe we'll get into this later my copy of 1984 is maybe a little bit moldy and i feel like it has like made me ill a little bit (laughs) (laughs) it's a very old (laughs) copy that i really like but i feel like it might be attacking me
0: all right next question (laughs) What's the book that you've had the longest that you want to read that's just been sitting there and driving yeah. you crazy? It's A Hundred Years of Solitude. Oh, sure. right. Yeah. Have you Have you tried it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. That makes me feel a lot better. And I don't even know
2: why I stopped reading it. I think it was one of those things where I was just interrupted. Yeah. Just like life got lifey somehow, and then I was I was seventy pages in, and it wasn't enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't enough for me to be fully invested in the novel so yeah. I was thwarted, but it was enough that I was daunted by the idea of going back and rereading it. Right. And I would never put a book down for more than like 3 or 4 months and not reread.
0: Yeah. That's Fair. what I'm
2: nervous about when it's
0: time for me to pick it up again because mm-hmm. I was 100 pages from the end, but it's like I got to yeah. start again.
2: Yeah, and it's not as fresh the second time, it's a different experience.
0: Yeah. The only time I've ever picked up a book again and enjoyed it was um the Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Oh. Besides that, I've never successfully like put something down and picked it up.
1: If I don't like a book, I, I don't like it. There's not many things that could shake me off reading a book. Life, life just doesn't get too lifey for me. Oh, all right. <laughs> uh, no, no, that's not true. Um,
3: yeah, I, I can't think of a good, of a good one. Mm. I don't know. This hasn't happened to me yet, But there are about five to ten books on this list that I hope that happens with. I got a bunch of ones that I've gotten pretty far in and and gave up on. Looking at you, Wind Up, Bird Chronicle.
0: So, Talia, you picked a book off my shelf. The book is 1984 by George Orwell. What made you pick this book of all the 140 books at the time?
2: It was one of my over like one of my books that has been on my shelf for a long time. I also heard a potentially erroneous statistic that like two thirds of the people who think that they've read 1984 haven't actually read 1984.
1: That yeah. happened to me, yeah, because yeah. I was like, I'll reread it. I read it in high school. No.
2: Yeah, I had a kind of weird experience reading it where I I wasn't initially certain if I'd read it before and just had mostly forgotten it, mm-hmm. um, because so much of it is embedded into kind of the cultural and political lexicon. Totally. Um, I just was like, yeah, I'm familiar with these things, and I'd probably read parts of it in the past. So I, I wanted
0: to be sure. Oh, good one. Andrew, you have this really old copy. Like, what made you have it on your shelf for so long?
3: Yeah, where'd you scoop it out of the gutter? <laughs> so... I know our father listens to this podcast, Bailey, and while I have no conscious memory of doing this, I am 98% sure this is his copy that has somehow been folded into my collection, which is why it's, from what I can tell from looking at it, a 1981 print from like a cheap classics version. But I really like it. I think I have one or two books that I've also stolen from Dad.
0: Um, Dad, if you're listening, it's uh, Prayer for Owen Meany. I thought it was my copy, but I think it's your copy, but... I took
1: it. It's mine. Your dad keeps mailing me books. Um, you know, know, they're all uh, <laughs> yeah, they're all good editions.
0: Andrew, can you describe your your cover?
1: It's covered in slime.
3: <laughs> um, it's like very simple. It's a bunch of bubble letters that just say George Orwell, 1984, and it has a green frame around it. It's very simple. It looks very 70s or early 80s. It kind of looks like it could be the like sign in front of a disco. But it Ooh. says George Orwell 1984. I mean, that's the energy of 1984,
0: yeah, right? That's yeah. like, signed
3: in front of a disco.
0: <laughs> can we do an experiment just for fun? Since yeah. it's our no. first guest. yeah. Can we do a progressive synopsis where we each say one sentence? So like Talia <laughs> says the first sentence, then Toby, then me, then Andrew. Okay, I'll start because it's the easiest. Okay. okay. Um, 1984 is
2: a dystopian novel about Winston Smith who lives in London, under the ruling of a totalitarian party led by Big Brother.
1: I mean, that's it, right? Nope, nope. All right, Winston works for the Ministry of Truth, um, where he spends all day uh, kind of redacting and amending uh, news articles um, so that they are in line with what the regime uh, wants the past to say.
0: And the inciting incident is that (laughs) Winston gets involved with a woman who may or may not be part of the thought police, which is the secret police that might report him. Yeah.
3: And it all takes place in 1984. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Uh,
1: That's fantastic. But also, and then uh, another, or one of the main aspects of the book that we didn't cover in our lovely round table, And one of the reasons it gets referenced a lot in this day and age is that he predicted a a society in which every single person in the society is being observed all the time Mm -hmm. through um, cameras on the street, microphones, hidden microphones. And then everyone's house contains uh, what he calls a telescreen, which is constantly broadcasting propaganda into the house that you can't turn off, but it's also watching every single occupant uh, in the land.
0: Hence, Big Brother is watching you. That's
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. kind of the opening image of the book, is he sees a poster, yeah. um, big mustachioed man.
0: Mustachioed—that's a great word. Yeah, right? that's, that was great. Well, that leads into one of my first points that I want to talk about, was just how much the book predicted what our actual future is like. There were just so many parts of it that I thought were darkly funny but would be funnier if they weren't hitting home way too much.
1: <laughs> yeah, the whole idea, a lot of the book is philosophically concerned with um, what is the truth if mm-hmm. nobody remembers what the truth is or nobody bothers to focus on what it is um, without giving too much away. Um, much of how Big Brother um, and his cohorts control the society is to constantly edit the past so that it's in line with, um, with what they want people to think. Um, so yeah, that, that that was the thing that stuck out to me the most is obviously we have people in the country these days um who have no interest in preserving any kind of truth or you know what no one was willing to say this is an objective fact and it happened and let's go from there um and that's kind of what this society is based on
2: yeah i think for me like the thing that was uh epistemologically triggering i guess
1: Ooh, was... this is why we had her on the podcast <laughs> hot damn! Uh,
2: was how, how how much it resonated with me the kind of intimate relationship in the book between epistemological certainty so the 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 belief that you what you know is true and you're justified in believing that it's true that it's knowledge that's what knowledge is and feeling that it's like it's enough to feel Mm -hmm. that something is true and and often you have to double think which is the simultaneous holding of two contradictory beliefs is a very common practice in the novel and i think it's a very common practice in our daily lives it's weird how in this book it's obviously so clearly a a negative thing yeah um but i think that was what was the most resonant with me is that in like kind of in a post-truth world i guess it's it's enough to feel that something is true yeah and you just you're just like i know that this is true and you seek out confirming information um and it doesn't matter what the facts are Mm -hmm. because you feel a certain way after Kellyanne Conway said uh, alternative facts, literally the next day it was the number one bestseller. That's crazy. Yeah. So I think it, that speaks a lot to to the relevance that it has today and the, the extent to which people feel their own reality reflected in what was essentially like a dystopian predictive yeah. text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no the, the I got that feeling too like uh there are certain books that I'll kind of earmark um for if I have kids I want to like force them to read it because they teach you in creative and fun ways uh important lessons and this is like a really scary one but definitely something that I would want. I mean, who knows? Like it, you would hope that, you know, you could get something out of this book as far as the possibility that truth can disappear if nobody knows it. Right? Yeah. People are still very hopeful about technology these days, but I think he was writing at a time where people were super hopeful about technology. You know, they were like, yeah, come 1984, we won't, you know, unless something like this book happens, we'll all be taking it easy. Like, no one's going to need to work at all. Like, uh, you know, so it was an interesting, interesting thing to see what he considered.
0: Did anybody else really want to, like, do the two-minute hate what? <laughs> oh, in the book, uh, Wait. I, I did not want to do that.
1: Oh okay. no!
3: <laughs> yeah, no, Bailey, that sounded awful. It sounded like you <laughs> well, no, were like intrigued in doing
0: that. Okay, <laughs> in the book, I mean, the rest of it's not so good. But the whole day, they're supposed to like not even emote at all. You know, the only way they can yes. get in trouble is by their thoughts. But then, for two minutes every day, they're allowed to like yell and scream at this person that may or may not be real who represents like the rebellion. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of wanted to yell at, scream, and scream at, you know, certain political leaders.
2: <laughs> My mom and I had a practice when I was a kid, when I was like six or seven, where she would go around to Goodwill's and just buy really beat up plates, porcelain plates. Ooh. I thought
1: you were going to say go around and scream at Goodwill <laughs> <place." laughs> <Just laughs> and
3: scream
2: At the people at Goodwill. She would buy porcelain plates, and when I would get really upset, she would we would like go outside and throw pa- plates against the wall.
1: Whoa!
2: Closest Whoa. thing I've ever come to to the two minutes of hate. Was it satisfying? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It was satisfying. I um, love that. I mean, I think that the two minutes of hate was horrible because it was a weaponization of like natural emotions, right? Um, but I think that the reason why you wanted to be participating in it is because we don't have very many outlets like that in mm-hmm. modern society. Yeah,
1: it's cathartic. Yeah, one of the things I really enjoyed about this book was um, his language is is great in a very un- I mean the most yeah. understated way. His preferred style of writing or the style of writing he encouraged was one called the pain of glass style, which is you should never see the writing or pay any attention to it. You should only see the story. Um, and this uh, this book is kind of like a masterclass in that style. I certainly like more or ornate writing. Uh, That's kind of like my personal taste, but this is also um, very, very impressive and very good.
3: Oh, yeah. And it was it was particularly, I think, effective in that the things that they're dealing with in such a matter of fact and direct way were so terrifying because it Mm -hmm. forced you to take a second look at it. I would go a few paragraphs and just kind of accept these terrible, terrible things he was listing. And I was like, okay, okay, And then I like had a moment where I took a breath and realized what that meant. And he didn't give you time to do that in the writing because I could see like somebody more. I think someone said ornate before. Someone more ornate with it would be like, you'd be processing it constantly. So I, yeah, something I really enjoyed about the book.
2: Yeah. I was reading um, an essay of his called Politics in the English Language. Has anyone read it? No. So he's not.
1: No, Talia, come on.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I had the advantage of being able to ask people at the hatchery oh, what they I thought of 1984, and they would just like be like, oh, well, have you read this essay? And I'm like... <laughs> Yes, of course. <laughs> and then I read it. Um, and it's basically about the degradation of the English language. Yeah. Um, but he has these six rules for writing, which is maybe part of what you're picking up with, the Hemingway kind of style.
1: Number one, be number sassy. One.
2: <laughs> Sass. <laughs> Sass clock. Uh, number one is never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech, which you are used to seeing in print.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, never. you Number two is never use a long word where a short one will do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if he's talking about, like, epistemological trigger. (laughs) Uh, Number three is, if it is possible to cut a word, always cut it out. Number four, never use the passive where you can use the active. Number five, never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. And number six, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous, which is... Interesting in the context of what you're saying, but also kind of interesting in the fact that he's still the person who created Newspeak. I was just going to say.
1: For people who might not have read the book, Newspeak is kind of the official language of the party. Um, And it is, uh, what do you guys say, like a hyper shortening of everything. There's a lot of words pushed together, like double think.
0: So one example of Newspeak would be instead of saying good and bad, you would have good and ungood. Or um,
1: instead of great, it's double or plus good.
0: Double plus good. Double Double plus plus good would would be like superlatively good versus... Mm double good would be very good yeah
2: and there are some words in newspeak that are new that represent like crime crime thought uh no thought crime double think there are a couple of other ones i think I there what? was duck speak which is mm. just the idea that thought is so unnecessary to the speaking of orthodox sentences that mm. it just comes from your larynx it just it just emerges like
1: the p- <laughs> the party would prefer that you not have to think about anything you ever say because you shouldn't ever think any thought that's more complicated than what they've told you to think. Yeah. Um, And it's basically, uh, there's a character who talks about the ultimate aim of Newspeak, right? And what does he say?
2: So the point of it was to to remove from the collective vocabulary any words that don't serve the ideological mission of the party and Big Brother. And uh, what they said about it is that Newspeak was designed not to extend, but to diminish the range of thought. Mm. It's the only language that every year gets fewer and fewer words in it every language is growing
1: yeah i thought that was such a great idea like so i think a lot of us i mean everybody takes language for granted don't we yeah yeah
3: I was curious, sort of, he uses a bunch of different techniques of, of storytelling to sort of switch the rhythm of the of the story in that he go he switches between narratives of just like what's happening in Winston's life to actual written material that he's reading to speeches delivered directly to Winston, reasonably unbroken. And I was curious mm-hmm. how that like affected it for, for y'all. I tend to key into the, the rhythm of the writing a fair amount. And so I found it was really effective, especially in the sort of long section in the middle, which is a lot lot of like verbatim written material that when he then took you out of it and broke it with like something that Winston was thinking or something from the real world I thought that that was a really interesting um way of of telling the story Mm.
2: I hated it yeah me too I hated it
3: Yeah. yeah I didn't
1: love it well, I did feel can't I, win them I, I all. D- <laughs> you would never publish a sci-fi book today. Which this is—we're going to yeah. say sci-fi—where um, in the middle of your book you break it in half to basically expound your political theories for thirty, forty pages.
2: Yeah, literally thirty, forty pages. And
1: I think it was just like uh, my modern reading taste buds that could not jive with that. I'm more used to kind of authors treating me kindly and delivering it in more sneaky ways, or kind of like maybe interspersing mm-hmm. it with action. Um, That being said, I just, I did feel that I was just spoiled, you know, like once you get it the good way, um, it can be hard to have the patience to be like, okay, so this is just continuous political theory. Oh, so there's 20 more pages of it.
0: I, I hear what you're saying and I don't necessarily mind the structure of it. Although with that said, I was powering through this book and it kind of, um, brought down the tension for me because it's nearer to the end. Yep. I just didn't think it added much. I feel like we already knew all of that information. If they were giving more information about how how the revolution happened or who these people were that, that were the leaders. That, I think, would have been more interesting. For me, it just felt, like, repetitive.
3: Yeah.
2: I had some difficulty throughout the novel differentiating between Winston's voice and the narrator's voice and this kind of, like, omniscient historical voice that you mm-hmm. get in the appendix yeah. about Newspeak and that you also get a little bit in terms of tone in that section in the middle where there's 30 pages of unannounced right. political text. Mm-hmm. Um, but my main issue with it was how I was going to emotionally categorize the misogyny. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's kind of brutal.
2: Yeah. So this is a quote where I had trouble differentiating between Winston and narrator in terms of his unbridled misogyny. Mm -hmm. So he says, he's talking about Julia, who is his love interest. So he says, uh, he did not know her name, but he knew that she worked in the fiction department. Presumably, since he had sometimes seen her with oily hands and carrying a spanner, she had some mechanical job on one of the novel-writing machines. She was a bold-looking girl of about 27, with thick dark hair, a freckled face, and swift athletic movements. A narrow scarlet sash, emblem of the Junior Anti-Sex League, was wound several times round the waist of her overalls, just tightly enough to bring out the shapeliness of her hips." He disliked nearly all women, and especially the young and pretty ones. It was always the women, and above all the young ones, who were the most bigoted adherents of the party, the swallowers of slogans, the amateur spies, and nosers out of unorthodoxy. But this particular girl gave him the impression of being more dangerous than most. So he bookends... He says he disliked nearly all women, which is clearly Winston. Mm -hmm. And at the end, this particular girl gave Winston the impression, which is also Winston. But in Mm -hmm. the middle, he's just talking about how women are always the bigots. Right. The narrator is just saying that. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: That stuck out to me, too. I literally wrote at that moment in my notes, Winston in cell. Yeah. <laughs> and then, But then I also was kind of taken out of the story as well, because I was like, same problem as you. I think you clarified it for me. I just had a bad reaction to it. But yeah, I couldn't tell in this moment, is this Winston's point of view? Is this some third-person narrator's point of view? Or is yeah. this George Orwell's yeah. point of view? Right. And given the time...
0: Also, George Orwell was pretty vehemently anti-feminist. I did not know that. I didn't know that either, but that that makes a lot of sense. And I do think the whole time he's wondering, is Julia in the Thought Police or not? I was hoping that she was, because from my perspective, she was such a one-dimensional character that I wanted her to have another aspect, another motivation.
2: And what was that motivation? What was that single dimension, would you say, for Julia?
0: I mean, just, like, sex. like sex. I mean, she she just, she gives him a note that says, I love you, and that's the inciting incident. That's the beginning. They've never spoken. And
2: And immediately, she gives him the note, and immediately he feels entitled to her, quote, white body, quote. Right. She is only ever a body in this story.
1: He goes pretty far. He repeats it a lot. Well, Winston and um, Mm O'Brien are basically the only intellectuals um, and Julia is not only not an intellectual, but she's a real dum-dum. Yeah. Yeah. And he yeah. hammers that point home a lot.
2: Yeah. In terms of intel, there's another quote about Julia that says he hated her because she was young and pretty and sexless because he wanted to go to bed with her and would never do so because round her sweet, supple waist, which seemed to ask to encircle it with your arm, there was only the odious scarlet sash, aggressive symbol of chastity.
0: Oh yeah, her waist is totally asking for you, bro. <laughs> yeah.
1: Add that to the list of things George Orwell predicted uh, accurately in Cels. He's got it. Got him dialed. It,
2: it is contextualized in this kind of like political yeah. repression of sexuality. So I, I mean, I guess it could be. But it just seems like Orwell as an author is talking about these power structures and how they're toxic without even thinking about. gendered power structures which makes him seem like a hypocrite to me
1: totally well and we have no uh examples of positive women in this book Mm -hmm. the only other person the only other woman there is the pro woman who he describes as like disgusting and then like toward the end not really a spoiler he's like isn't she beautiful in her idiot simplicity or something you know like and
0: there's also his wife who he doesn't care at all about He's like she just disappeared i hope she's dead i don't know another
1: fiercely anti-intellectual woman
0: yeah and they're all it's It's not good. It doesn't so much hold up in that way.
1: I feel like we're going to be saying that a lot over the course of this podcast (laughs) as we read classics.
0: All right. So it sounds like we had a lot of positive. um, We had a lot of. What are you saying?
1: (laughs) That would be my reaction, though. Is like positive. Yeah, that's mine
0: too. Right. Exactly. So I'm wondering, everybody here, how many stars would you give it out of five, and will you keep it on your shelf? We should do it on the count of three. Okay, Andrew, you ready? Yeah. Three. Two, one, four. Four. Trains pulling into
1: four stations. Yeah,
0: it's four from everyone. Okay. Wow. I just felt like I I did think it held up overall. I was going between three and four, and then I thought that it did so much for the dystopian genre and for our society that I went to four. What about you guys? I gave it a four. If
2: it was a standalone book that didn't exist in kind of like the cultural context, I would have given it a three. Um, It was a good read, but there were parts of it that were really, really slow for me. Yes. And I also am not a huge fan of books that were written in times when racism and sexism were like real and people go, oh, just whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, But the main reason I gave it four stars is because it almost felt like it was reading a primary text of some kind. Um, It felt like in reading it, I was more informed about terms that are kind of, I use in my daily life. So that's why I gave it a four.
1: Yeah, it was hovering around a three for most of it, honestly, for me. I rate it like I try not to give stuff points for historical or anything like that. Um, but personal enjoyment, definitely hovering, hovering around a three until the end, which I don't, don't want to give any spoilers. But it really cranked it up, like really... Um, exciting, thrilling, things are kind of brought home in a very cool way, and you come face to face with some stuff that you really wanted to, and there's some incredible language. Uh, This is not a spoiler, but my favorite quote from the book, which I think is one of the best things that a villain has ever said in any book ever, Uh, and it is kind of like just repeated in different ways in all sorts of media, is if you want to see a vision of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Mm -hmm. that that line right there i was like yep that's up to four stars because that i mean that whole villain speech and his motivation and the motivation of the party oof it's good stuff so that was my kind of moment it became a four-star book for me
0: yeah what about you andrew
3: there are obviously some deep set problems in the text which we've surfaced in our conversation um but the ending and in particular the last like five page section i thought was such an elegant punctuation mark or grace note or like coda to the book um, that it really brought it up to a four star for me.
0: That's crazy that we all kind of felt the same way. And it, is everybody going to keep it? Is anybody like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to toss it.
1: Oh, yeah, I would. I mean, I don't own it because I was it on Audible. Um, if I had a physical copy, I would just donate it.
3: Yeah. Toby, I don't want to be a butthead, but previously hmm. you said you would put this on a list of books you want to give to your children to make sure they read. Yeah, so we'll buy I guess another copy. I question Ooh, your whole what? world view if you're going <laughs> to no. give away your thought book. Crime.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thought crime, thought no. crime, thought <laughs> crime. Yeah. Toby is large. He contains multitudes. Mm. <laughs> so Toby, do you have any facts for us?
1: Oh, I have mad facts. Um, this is more facts about Orwell because his life was super interesting. Um, so did you guys know that his name is not George Orwell? Yes. This is a pseudonym.
3: Yes. It was Eric. Eric Blair. Oh, Toby. Off to a
1: speeding start. <laughs> yeah, Eric Arthur Eric Blair. Um, and he just didn't like that name, didn't like his own name for an author's name, so he came up with George Orwell. Do you know that uh, Orwell or Eric Blair was expelled from his crammer school, um, which is a special institution uh, that he went to that helps students cram for specific exams? And he was expelled because he sent a birthday message attached to a dead rat to the town surveyor. What? Yeah.
2: No, that's a crazy fact. That's crazy. No, that's, yeah, that's crazy. Um, no, I think it's
1: normal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Um, so did you guys know that Orwell fought in the Spanish Civil War?
2: Yes. I did know that.
1: Yeah, I knew that. This is a well-known fact. Um, But yeah, so uh, my fact isn't that he did that. um, And then um, the communists, uh, he was on the side of the communists, sort of, but he was in his own splinter faction. Um, But the communists actually turned against his faction and he had to flee. Uh, Then he spent his time in Paris um, and he was afraid because communists were all over Paris as well. And they were hunting down members of his splinter group um, or any enemies they had at all. So he needed protection, so he went to go get a handgun. And who do you think he went to go get a handgun from, Bailey? Hemingway. Oh.
3: I was going to guess Hemingway, but you specifically asked Bailey. (laughs) I only say Bailey because of a movable okay, okay. feast. Yeah, so that's a cool little tie-in to our previous reading.
1: Um, he had a bunch of odd jobs throughout his life. Um, he worked as a police officer for the Indian Imperial Police in Burma, uh, present-day Myanmar. Uh, he was a high school teacher, a bookstore clerk, a propagandist for the BBC during World War II, a literary editor, and a war correspondent. Uh, he also had knuckle tattoos.
0: Ooh, what, did they, what? What were they? Uh,
1: I'm sorry, well, what, Toby? <laughs> he had, well, no, that's all I'm going to say. Guys have thrown enough shade on my no. facts. Um, so yeah, he had knuckle tattoos uh, while he was working as a police officer in Burma. Um, he got them. Uh, he said um, that the tattoos were small blue dots in the shape of small grapefruits, and Orwell had one on each knuckle. Um, there. Hold up.
3: What? so wait by small grapefruits he just means little dots because if it's that small how could it be distinguishable as a grapefruit
1: this is a quote from an article it's not my words thank you very much i didn't look at these pictures and come up with grapefruits i'll admit it's a bad image i'm a Um, big fan of
3: killing the messenger and toby i'm (laughs) very (laughs) mad
1: yes i can i can tell um Uh, So, yeah, it was a Burmese tradition um, that some tribes believed that these particular tattoos would protect them from bullets. Um, But it's never he never really talked about, at least with the press or anybody who could have recorded it, why he really got them. Um, But he definitely enjoyed uh, not being a correct British gentleman. Uh, He liked to kind of do things that uh, made him seem uh, edgy and cool.
3: Right,
0: mom, I got these knuckle tattoos going to have a different name. I'm going to edit this part out because no. people are not going to like it.
3: <laughs> it's also Australian, I feel like. Also, he's probably pretty posh. So.
0: Nope. Yeah, he's definitely posh. He went to Eton. Let's uh. try that again. Anyway, Mother.
3: <laughs> I've got these grapefruits. They're just circles, George.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so, let's see. Uh, he also uh, had a, a goat that he loved a lot. Was it named Jolly? Uh, no, it was named Muriel, um, which is also the same the name of the goat in Animal Farm. Oh, yeah. So there you go. And them's my facts. Good facts, Toby.
0: That's great research, Toby. I just want to give you a compliment. You're doing a really good job.
1: Cut this out. It doesn't fit my image on that podcast. <laughs>
0: well, Andrew, I hear that you have a game for us.
3: I do have a game. Would you guys like to play? Yes. yes. All right. So the game this week is called I Love Big Brother. <laughs> Oof. I thought it would be fun after spending a large chunk of the ep- episode on 1984 to expand our literary horizons a little bit. So
0: okay. something I
3: figured everybody would know about 1984 even if they hadn't read the book is that it centers a character named Big Brother and I thought you know there are lots of books in the world and lots of books that uh, have big brothers in them so the way this game works is I'm going to say the name of the younger sibling who has a famous older sibling in literature you will recognize the wide majority of these people
2: this is the part where I'm uncovered as a fraud
1: You know, this is my deepest fear is with these (laughs) games but here here we go
3: alright so the way the game will work is i will say the name of the younger sibling and whoever thinks they have the answer first will say big brother big brother we're not doing turns this time because i think they're obvious enough that whoever went first would probably win
0: okay so it's like jeopardy style where you have to jeopardy style
3: but instead of buzzing in because i can't see you you have to say big brother big brother okay got it first of three wins and please don't yell the answer out until i say your name that's all i ask okay all right scout Big brother, big brother.
1: Toby. Oh no, I forgot it.
0: Big brother, big brother Steel.
1: Bailey. Yeah, I got it.
0: Jem. That's Greg <sighs>
3: Bailey. All <Finch>. right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Arya.
1: Big, big brother, brother,
3: big brother. brother. Talia?
2: Jon Snow.
3: Ooh, I don't oh, actually oh, big, have him big brother, listed. Big brother as Steel. An
1: what
2: <laughs> are you trying to say about adoptive legitimacy? Big.
1: Rob Stark.
3: I'm going to give you each a point for that.
2: Nice. Okay. Oh. I overlooked main... Family I... is family.
3: That's true. I'm taking away a point from Toby. Ooh, what?
2: <laughs> what yeah. the heck? Andrew, I want to take this opportunity to congratulate you on your own ability <laughs> to examine your privilege.
3: <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> right. You're welcome. Thanks for the point. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. feeling great. All right, so right for now, me. it's Tali one, Bailey one. All right. Yeah. Georgiana
2: oh oh uh big brother big brother talia darcy
3: that's correct mr darcy's younger sister is georgiana
2: oh yeah
3: yeah. all right um pony boy i know the book but i don't know i don't even know the book oh come on pony boy
2: big brother big brother talia for
1: the
3: win all
2: frauds all of us are frauds (laughs) i don't know the answer either uh what is pony boy from
3: Big Brother, Big Brother, Stallion Boy. Stay gold. All right, no one gets a point uh, for that because I'm disappointed. The options were soda pop or dairy. <laughs>
2: okay.
1: Okay.
3: All right. oh, I don't
2: know why I didn't think of soda pop. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, Phoebe. What? <laughs> Adding a last name here, Phoebe Caulfield. Big, girl, Big Brother. Uh, <laughs> Bailey, I heard first. Holden. Yep, that's Holden Caulfield. Come on, guys, have mm. a little fun with this. <laughs> Michael Darling.
0: Big brother, big brother.
3: Bailey. Wendy. That is no. not his brother.
0: <laughs> oh, John Darling.
3: All right. It took me That's a while. That's it. Bailey is the winner. Ah! Ah!
1: Ran ah! away with it. Congratulations. Um, I'm just going to say I lost this game because uh, I have no brothers. Yeah, I was a handicap. And also there was some Game of Thrones, uh, I'll just say BS.
0: Are you sure you want to say that? b Snow. B. B. Snow.
2: (laughs) I love the game. Oh,
0: good. Yay. Andrew, you do a great job on the game.
3: Fantastic. Thank you all for playing.
0: Good game, Andrew. All right, so this week we do not have a choosening um, because we have a special guest and we already have the books for next week. But just as a reminder, um, in two weeks, the next episode will be Andrew reading Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. I'm reading The Sun is Also a Star by Nicola Yoon. And then two weeks after that, Toby has do androids dream of electric sheep Ooh. by philip k dick
1: and a mystery one from bailey and a mystery yeah. one from me you've read it Talia? yeah nice you enjoyed it yeah how many stars you must codify it
2: i mean i want to say four but it's not the same it's like so much better than 1984
1: the no partial star system uh, is quite harsh yeah. yeah i think i'm gonna like it
0: well thank you so much for being our first guest Talia, you're an
1: yeah, awesome guest. Talia. thank you for
0: yeah, having you, me Talia.
1: And I mean, I'll promote the hatchery. Um, if you're not convinced, um, you should be because it's fantastic. You should absolutely check it out if you're in Los Angeles. Um, you couldn't find a better place to work. And Talia is great.
0: All right. Uh, well, thanks for listening to the Two read list. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at com. Follow us on Goodreads at Goodreads.com slash the Two read list podcast. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the to read list podcast and on Twitter at Two read
3: list pod. And if you like what you heard here today, please go onto iTunes and rate us five stars and leave a review. I know it sounds silly, but it really does help people find us and spread the word about this podcast.
1: Yeah, and uh, the thing you can do that's almost even better than that is if you enjoy us, um, please tell somebody in your life that you know enjoys books, someone who enjoys uh, critically rating things with whole stars and not partial stars. Yeah, word of mouth, I think, is the best uh, thing, and we would really love if you told someone.
0: And thanks again to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting with me, to Talia for being our awesome guest, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books,
3: Books, 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 books.